I'm Euro. I'm Chris. And this is Fork Bomb. Wednesday, February 21st, 2018. Interviewing the 8-Bit Guy. On this episode, our 20th episode, we have a very special guest. David Murray, uh, also known as the 8-Bit Guy, previously known as the iBook Guy. Thank you again so much. Uh, I promise we will keep the gushing to a a minimum. <laughs> We're not worthy. <laughs> um, originally, we wanted to talk about uh, just Tandy in general. And then once um, we started digging into Tandy, uh, we realized, oh, wow, there's a whole 20-year swath starting with the trash 80s uh, or TRS 80s. And then we started uh, digging into just the uh, TRS 80 but then we decided, well, I mean, um, this could be a one-time thing. Who knows? So we figured um, we would just go unscripted, just have a few questions, and um, just try to have fun talking, if that's all right with you, David. No, that, that's absolutely fine. You can talk about anything you want. Uh, I I guess that's not entirely true. I, I tend to um, not want to talk, at least publicly, about like politics or religion. But uh, no anything else, I'm good with. <laughs> we'll, we'll stick to fun stuff. <laughs> we promise. <laughs> we we actually, uh, you know, uh, and how we decided this. You know, Chris took some awesome TRS-80 notes, and uh, and at the beginning, we were going to just a Tandy computers, everything related to Tandy, and then there's so much about. Tandy itself that we're like, okay, wait a minute, let's just focus on one set of computers and then we'll do a Tandy 1000 later and then the R RSX and all that. But uh, as I was coming up with some questions to ask you, I was like, well, it, I think it'd be funner just to just to ask, uh, you know, David, uh, a bunch of questions and stuff and, and just kind of go off script and, you know, do that. So that's how we're, that's how we ended up here. And um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I've been doing research on the Tandy machines myself because I've, well, when I'm done with my Commodore history series, I plan on doing a Tandy history series. And it is daunting because there are numerous, numerous machines. And uh, yeah, I don't know as much about them as uh, a lot of people think I do. I mean, I know the general names of the computers and I know what pro processors they have and what operating systems they run, but I don't really know a lot of technical information about how they work or any of the history behind them. So I'm going to have to be doing a lot of research myself uh, to do those, mm -hmm. those videos. So uh, I, I know exactly how you probably feel when you were, when you were digging into that, because that's kind of where I'm at too. Yeah. There were so many different versions of the trash 80. And I mean, they were, the, the uh, version numbers skip around, too. I mean, they went from TRS-80 Model 1 to TRS-80 Model 3, and the Model 2 was an entirely different computer. Then there's the, then there's the Model 2 Model 16, which was a Xenix <laughs> machine. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and they got so the Color much. Computer 1, Color Computer 2, Color Computer 3, the MC-10, and then, of course, they've got the Tandy 1000s and the Tandy 2000s. They got all their whole line of Tandy portable computers, like the Model 100, Model 200, Model 600. Yeah. And then, of course, don't forget the pocket computers. They got, like, a whole slew of those as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> It just, yeah, it's quite a few of them. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't squeeze that in a forty-five minute show or or even an hour show. But hey, you're you're welcome to join us in our Tandy episode too, if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fine. Yeah. Um, since uh, we probably know uh, a good bit more about you from um, your content than uh, you do about us, would you mind if we just give you a brief overview of our backgrounds? Sure, go ahead. 
Um, myself, I'm currently an AWS uh, solutions architect. I work for uh, the company that currently presides over Gizmodo and Gadget, The Onion, um, and all the other previous Gawker brands, along with a bunch of Univision sites and uh, mainly an all-around open-source Linux guy, um, background in web development and IT somewhere in between. Um, and uh, Euro uh, kept uh, asking me to start a podcast, and finally I relented, and it's the best thing uh, we've ever done together as far as uh, creative outlets go. All right. Yep, by far. Yeah. Um, so, David, I'm Euro. Uh, I actually work at Citrix Systems as a Splunk, uh, well, I guess a Splunk connoisseur, because I pretty much do everything Splunk related to over there. I don't, and I don't know if you know what Splunk is, but it's a... <laughs> I know what Citrix is, but I've never heard of Splunk. <laughs> okay. Well, so Splunk is the system that they use to uh, log all their data. And so we do analytics and business intelligence and all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, reporting and yeah. So uh, I'm the manager of the uh, of the Splunk group uh, over there, and um, and yeah, and Chris and I we met in college, and um, we thought we were going to be semester friends, and um, you know how many years has it been now, Chris? Like almost ten, and we're still hanging out. We graduated <laughs> 2004, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So over ten years old, and uh, ten years ago, and uh, and yeah, we're still hanging out. So I'm glad uh, you weren't a semester buddy there, Chris. Indeed. So, David, uh, actually, you know, one of the first episodes that I watched uh, of yours and, uh, you know, Google usually and actually YouTube usually says, oh, you may like this and you may like that. Well, you came up as the 8-bit guy and actually the, as the iBook guy at, in the beginning. And I was instantly hooked uh, because you're so detailed in your podcast. Really, uh, it must take you a while to, to create an episode, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I typically tell people 30 to 40 hours per episode uh, on average. Yeah. Wow. And you do your own video editing? Yes. I pretty much do my own everything. <laughs> <laughs> much respect to you, sir. Indeed. I I do the editing uh, for the podcast, and it, it is easily the most tedious part, and, and that, that's only audio. I mean, that's easy in comparison. Um I guess my first official question is, how do you stave off burnout? Uh, well, mostly because I'm constantly starting a new thing. So, I mean, yeah, the video production part about it can get kind of annoying as well as, like you said, some of the tedious stuff. In fact, there's a lot of tedious stuff that um, people often forget that I have to do. I mean, sure, I spend three, four, five hours editing a video, but then I spend another one to two hours just doing like subtitle captions and and, uh, you know, just creating like a, just a thumbnail takes me like, you know, 30, 45 minutes, you know, sometimes. And so there's a lot of tedious work involved. That's, uh, that's for sure. But, uh, I do like the fact that when I'm done with one project, you know, which I've probably spent four or five days on, then I get to move to something entirely different. And, it, you know, I guess, and, and I can, you know, kind of switch things up a bit, uh, whether I'm doing a, you know, a restoration or a, a documentary or, you know, a game review or something like that. Uh, plus, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I switch things up throughout the day. I just actually released a video today. You might or might not have seen it. I've called, uh, it was my 200th, uh, 200th episode and it was a special showing what, what a day of my life is like. And so you kind of see, I, I have a variety of things I have to do uh, during the day. So I don't spend more than a few hours on any individual thing. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on your 200th. 
Well, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, so we haven't seen it yet, uh, so it must be pretty new. Um, six hours ago. Six hours, okay. Well, yeah, that's uh, pretty new. Um, yeah, we were, uh, Chris and I, we enjoy watching your show. So, um, and actually just yesterday, we we were watching uh, one of your shows together, and that was on your Planet X2 and then uh, Planet X3 videos. And uh, really, wow, Assembler, Dave? Man. <laughs> You know, uh, could you, okay, here's my question. Could you have built the same game in uh, in basic, but on another platform? Well, if the platform were uh, a modern computer with a, you know, processor that runs at hundreds or thousands of megahertz, then sure. Yeah, absolutely. But on anything, you know, from the 80s, there's no way that you could do a basic for a game like that. It'd just be too slow. Yeah, you need a low level access to the hardware and the lowest that it gets is a assembly. I mean, I could have possibly written it in C. Um, the trouble is, uh, especially on the C64 version, the memory restraints were so uh, so tough that uh, adding C would have made the code larger. And so I think I would have been able to fit less in memory. I think C would have probably been okay from a performance standpoint. Uh, just I, I don't think I would have had enough memory to actually complete the game. Uh, but uh, on the uh, PC version, I could probably get away with C. But uh, I'm actually fairly comfortable in Assembler, so um, you know, like like I said, in, like I said in the video, a lot of people get scared of Assembler because it looks really super complicated, like something only like uh, I don't know, got to be like Stephen Hawking or something to be able to to figure <laughs> it out. But it's it's really not that bad. It, it's got a little bit of a steep learning curve, but once you figure it out, it actually I don't think it's any harder than C, to be honest. And I guess to get started with it, um, it would be best to do it on an older system like a C64. I'm, I'm assuming it has far uh, a much smaller instruction set and um, when it's more limited with what you can do with it, it would make just the concept of it much easier to pick up. Sure, yeah, the Commodore 64 uses basically a risk processor. Uh, a lot of people don't think of it that way, but it, it you know, the 6502 really is it's a reduced instruction set processor. It only has like I can't remember the number off the top of my head, like 50 or 60 instructions. And really, uh, typically, you're only going to use maybe 20 of those. And I've already noticed going over to MS-DOS programming on the 8086, which is a CISC processor. Oh, wow, there's so many more instructions, which is sort of good and sort of bad. It's it's good because it, uh, it makes some things take less time, I guess, because you can use one instruction where on the C64, you might have had to use four or five to do the same function. But it's also um, it's more to learn. <laughs> what um what got you initially into um, into creating content on YouTube? Okay, well uh, I've <laughs> I've told this story a, a number of times, but I, I don't mind telling it again. So uh, I started a business back in oh I don't know the early two thousands where no actually probably the late two thousands. And, and I was uh, refurbishing uh, Apple iBooks. And I had been trying to find kind of a weekend job doing something computer-related for the longest time. And, you know, I just like many people have probably tried to sell their services doing, like, computer repair for people. You know, I tried that, and I got some business, but it's it's actually surprisingly difficult to compete with some of the local chain stores like Best Buy and 
you know, fries and some of the computer repair shops and stuff like that, which is kind of sad because um, I I was way, way, way more experienced in their minimum wage workers that they would typically have in those kind of stores. And I charged way, way less, but I didn't have the advertising ability. <laughs> and so one of the things that I eventually realized that uh, what I could do is rather than trying to sell my repair services to people, I could just buy stuff that needs to be repaired and fix it and then resell it. And then essentially what I'm doing is I'm, I'm still using my repair skills, but rather than trying to cater to a person, I'm just uh, repairing stuff and being able to sell a product. Right. And so anyway, one of the things I eventually discovered is that it was more um, efficient if I just stuck with one product. And for some reason, I kind of like the Apple iBooks and they were pretty popular at the time on the used market. And so, uh, yeah, I just stuck with those and, and I, I bought up, tons and tons of broken ones and and of course because i stuck with one unit i always had repair parts available for that unit not only that i got really good at taking them apart and putting them back together because i did the same unit over and over and over and over again and so uh, that actually turned out to be a really efficient business model and i did that for several years and i actually did pretty well with it i think uh you know as a weekend job i i think uh, i think on my best year i made like twenty five thousand dollars that year just you know, refurbishing and selling Apple iBooks like on eBay and Craigslist and stuff like that. Anyway, so I was looking for ways to expand my market a little bit. And so I thought I'd make those some how-to YouTube videos about the iBooks and um, see if, you know, I could draw some attention to my website to sell stuff. Because on eBay, you know, you got to pay fees to sell that stuff. Sometimes it could be like for a three or $400 computer, I might pay 30 or $40 fee. And so I thought if I can sell this stuff on my website, you know, that would be a lot better. So maybe I'll make some useful videos and that will help kind of like a advertising tool to draw people in. It actually did not work, at least not in the beginning anyway. Um, and um, I think when the iPad came out, it kind of killed the used market for those types of computers and it just kind of became unprofitable. So, um, but people still love those videos. They were always asking me to make more. So I kept making more, especially once uh, someday... Uh, one day somebody told me to uh, monetize my channel, which I didn't know anything about, but I monetized it and right off the bat. I was making like $30 a month just on the videos that I had there, which was, you know, maybe 10 of them. And so I realized, well, Hey, you know, all I need is a few hundred of these <laughs> and that'll be, good, that'll be a good weekend job and I won't need to uh, repair computers anymore, you know? And uh, so that's kind of where it stemmed from. And once I ran out of content for, anything related to iBooks, I thought, you know, I need to, I need to find another uh, topic to talk about. And so since I liked old computers, I thought, well, let's, let's try changing my name to the eight bit guy and let's do, uh, let's do retro computers and see how that goes over. And I guess it went pretty well. So that's kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, thank you for uh, recounting it. Is this currently your primary source source of income? It is now as of a year ago, I literally, I quit my job. I'd been working, um, at that at that job for 11 years and i actually quit it uh in february of last year that's incredible so this that's month, fantastic this month marks one year and uh, i was pretty nervous about it when I, I i quit but uh i had already more or less uh had been making enough money that i thought i could live on and the you know the patreon and whatnot was still in a process of rising so i was pretty sure that as time went on that i would be okay and 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 i have i've, I've actually Actually, been surprisingly okay. I was. That makes me wonder what I was so worried about before. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's great, David. I'm, I'm, and I'm so glad. And, and we can actually, you know, you can tell uh, when you see new videos up in the high quality that, wow, I mean, you must be dedicated to this and, and you really are. Um, so uh, I'd like to ask you this. Uh, so about how old were you when you got your first computer then? You I was six, be... six years old. Ah, me too. And it was a Commodore VIC-20. Well, so what, what was your first computer? Yeah, it was a Commodore VIC-20, and it was in 1981. Oh, that's right. You actually did mention that on one of your of your uh, videos. Of, uh, I believe it was Planet X2, right? <laughs> it might yeah. have been. I've, I probably yeah. mentioned it more than once. But uh, yeah, so I had a VIC-20 for a couple of years, and then I got a C64 after that and uh, kind of moved on. The, moved up the whole chain through the Commodore world and uh, before I got uh, eventually got a PC in the uh, probably around 1990. Uh, part of what's fun about uh, doing this podcast uh, uh, for me is uh, my first computer was a 486, so I never got to experience that era. So um, while I still have one retro machine, um, which is you know just a Pentium 2, uh, learning about that era is kind of like being nostalgic for um, just machines I never had and, ne and never got to, to uh, work with. And it's been extremely interesting, and I, I wish I was born sooner. I, I wish I could have had a Commodore. I wish I could have had a VIC-20. I wish I could have, you know, actually used DOS as my primary operating system. I probably would have uh, learned much more back then. Yeah, you know, I could go on and on and on about that, um, but I think one of the things that stands out to me when I think back about my childhood and getting computers is at the time, there they were really a magical thing because there was nothing else like them, uh, whether it be a Commodore or an Atari or an Apple. Um, Agreed. And, you know, you had video game systems, but uh, home computers were kind of a new thing. And, uh, and it's, there weren't very many people that had them. I only knew just a handful of people. In fact, when I was really little, like in elementary school, I didn't know anybody else who had a home computer. And so, um, it, uh, but yeah, it was a really magical thing, uh, learning it and exploring it. And of course, there wasn't any internet you could search for stuff. So you had to go like to the library or look for computer magazines in your uh, local bookstore and stuff like that. And, and you would learn more and more in depth about how it worked. And it took a long time to figure things out. But every time you, you know, uh, learn something new, it was almost, it, it was just a magical moment that you've learned how to do something else new with your computer you didn't know how to do before. And um I mean, and then and then when the new computers would come out, each new generation would offer, you know, better graphics or better sound, and and the games would suddenly look better. And it was such an exciting time to get a, an upgrade. Where today, you know, I don't know that all the computers are pretty much exactly the same. You get a new one, and it does exactly the mm -hmm. same thing the old one did. Might be a little yeah. faster, you know, might be a little more energy efficient, but uh, might have a better video card. But you know, they don't do anything excitingly different, <laughs> you know. So I, I do kind of miss that time uh, when when it was so exciting. I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, about it being magical, uh, David, because, uh, you know, back then, you know, you were playing Doom. All of a sudden, Duke Nukem 3D came out and whoa. And then after that, Quake came out. You know what I mean? It, it, was, yeah. it was like leaps in technology that would just you don't get that nowadays. You know, it's. <laughs> Pretty much everyone who's been using a computer for, you know, let's say they, well, I'll give you an example. Like my daughter, she's 15. Her entire life, she's never, 
you know, she's been using computers, but she's never seen that paradigm shift in, um, and what they can do. I mean, they've always been able to do more or less the same thing that she does with them now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, yeah, you pretty much had to live through the seventies and eighties to really experience that the nineties to some degree, uh, admittedly. Uh, but I think, I think anything after like 1995, like when windows 95 came out, uh, that's kind of when things stopped changing as much as they, they did before that. Does your daughter have any interest in the uh, retro scene, or is it just... Um... Absolutely none. <laughs> <laughs> Although, surprisingly, uh, you know, I do Maybe get later. emails uh, from people who are her age or younger, and when I go to conventions, which I, I do several times a year, I go to conventions, and I'll... Uh, like the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, for example, and there's a Long Island uh, Retro Gaming Expo I do as well. And, you know, I'll, um, I'll have a little booth there, and, you know... Well, I'll do a speech at some point. They'll give me a little auditorium and I'll do a presentation and whatnot. And then later they'll give me a little booth out in the, the main area, gaming area and people will come by and, and talk to me. And um, I've been surprised at, at the number of young people that come by to talk to me because, you know, at first I when I started doing this channel, I really didn't think anyone would be interested in this kind of stuff unless they grew up with it. But I'm just amazed at the number of 9, 10, 11-year-olds that come up to talk to me and say that I'm their favorite channel because you know they didn't grow mm-hmm. up in this stuff so mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating to me that they that they even find the history of it interesting but uh, they do yeah absolutely that is very fascinating especially since children of, of, of that age are being brought up on tablets and phones where there is just nothing to explore <laughs> mm-hmm. no i'm sure it's it's quite a minority of children <laughs> i'm sure but uh, <laughs> but nevertheless there are some so uh, that gives me some hope that uh, history yeah. won't be lost, that uh, people will always find some kind of interest in those those machines. That is encouraging. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, um, from seeing the, the uh, you know, social media sites like Facebook, uh, you know, they have, they have really popular uh, retro uh, areas, re- retro sections, retro groups. Sure. Um, and uh, I'm... One of them that sticks out right now is uh, retro machines, and I see people posting all kinds of stuff on there—the old hardware and software and and things like that. And um, yeah, a lot. There's a lot of interest, um, a lot, lot more than I thought. So, David, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. What? Um, so, which programming languages? Which programming languages do you know, and which is your favorite? Ooh, um, I guess just off the top of my head, I mean, obviously, I basic, that was the first language I learned. <laughs> and then, of course, there's like a hundred variations of basic. So I don't, you know, guess there's any point in getting into that. And I know, well, I hesitate to say no. I used to be pretty good at C back in the 90s and Pascal, but I haven't used either of those languages in over 10 years. And I'm sure I can pick them back up fairly quickly, but... Um, I, off the top of my head, I'm not I'm not too uh, good with them right now. And then uh, assembler, of course. So I guess I guess four languages. And I don't know anything modern. Like I mean, people ask me like, "Oh, why don't you write an iPhone game or something like that?" And mm-hmm. like, I have no idea where to even begin with <laughs> something like that. I've downloaded the IDE before, you know, to try to start developing on that. And I think I spent three or four days one time just literally pulling my hair out trying to figure out how to code for the iPhone. I, I just it just. Uh, you know, it's all object oriented and it's, uh-huh. you know, even though it may be in a language like C, for example, that I'm accustomed to, uh, the development environment and all the um, uh, dependencies and stuff are just, 
uh, way too complex. I'd, I'd, I'd need to go to like school or something and, and have someone teach me how to program in, in these modern environments. I, I just, I can't figure it out. So did you play the gorillas, the gorilla games on, on QBasic? That one that you throw bananas at each other? No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> no? Oh, it didn't come with yours. So I believe it came with 6.22. Uh, when you loaded up QBasic, you can load up the wow. gorilla game. <laughs> yeah, and that's how I learned how to program was messing around with that uh, gorilla game, trying to get the bananas to go farther, and then they would just completely uh, crash the game, or, or the banana would go off the screen. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'll get off my gorilla tangent. But <laughs> you're absolutely right about um, modern software development. It, it's got kind of it's gotten nuts. Uh, there's so many layers of abstractions between you and the metal now, and JavaScript especially. That's just a weird, bizarre world. It's like two package managers and so many different libraries, and there's a new library every year that everyone thinks is the, is the new hotness, and people are doing insane things. Like there's a fully functional uh, CPU emulator written in JavaScript that natively runs Mac OS 7 and its, its applications. Um, Chris, do you have a question? I I do believe that I do. Um, Computer Chronicles, have you ever watched it? Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Good talk, good talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope someday we can interview Stuart Chaffee. Oh, man, that, that would be so, so awesome. I have to admit. Yeah, too bad about... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, you know, I've watched, I don't know, most, I think I sat, I don't know, it was about a year ago, I sat around and watched most of those. And I have to admit, some of them are pretty boring. <laughs> and I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> but uh, some of them are pretty interesting, though. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I honestly did not know who Gary Kildall was until the Computer Chronicles. <laughs> and sadly, um, up in uh, the majority... For the first, I don't know, quarter of the time I was watching it, I just thought of, oh, it's the, you know, that that co-host for Computer Chronicles. And then it got to the Gary Kildall special, and it said, yeah, he died, and he did all this really incredible stuff and made the first 8-bit microcomputer operating system. And I felt really bad for not uh, knowing who I was watching before. Actually, I I had no idea. I thought he was just an actor. (laughs) 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 That's used to me, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, Digital research is... uh... Mm-hmm. Good. He, he wrote CPM. He did. Yes. Mm-hmm. I should know that. Yeah. I guess I don't. <laughs> I'm going to be doing yeah, an episode president on of digital CPM research. Eventually. You said you're going to be doing an episode on CPM. Eventually, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. It's 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 on my list of about 200 partially scripted episodes that I <laughs> have planned. So who knows when it'll be completed? But uh, you know, maybe a year or two. But yeah, it's it's on the list. Yeah, that I actually covered really it a little bit when I did the episode on the Osborne. I, I spent about, I mean, maybe like mm-hmm. four or five minutes talking about CPM just so people would have some clue as to what operating system the machine was running. But I didn't go you know, too deep into it. Speaking of historical figures in computing, if there was one person you could speak to in the computer industry, alive or dead, uh, who would it be? Oh, man. Um That's a tough one. I wish you'd given me some time to think about that because all these names start springing to mind. Gary <laughs> and Kildall. And, <laughs> but no, he wouldn't have been the first one to come to mind. I, 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 names yeah. like uh, Chuck Pennell, Jack Trammell, uh, Steve Wozniak. And I realize some of these are still alive, of course. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna have to jump in, Chris, and say I would really like to interview Jack Trammell. I wish we could just bring him back. <laughs> Because I, I really want to know what was going on in his mind in 1983 <laughs> with all that stuff going on between Atari and Commodore. What was the uh, founder of Intel's name? Bill Noyce? Bob Noyce? Gordon Moore? No, What's he was, the question again? Um, the the uh, founder of Intel. The founder was, of uh, Intel? Yeah, Bob, Bob Noyce. Bob Noyce, Robert Noyce. From Spratly... Right, semiconductors. For me, it 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 would have to be him, just because of just how driven and and prolific he was. Of course, Alan Turing would be fun to meet too, um, if that would ever have a time machine or something like that. Oh yeah, true. Oh yeah, you're. Oh, my turn. Okay. Oh, and and Dave, if you have a question for us, you know, feel free. Just butt in like I do. I, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm good right now. So yeah. All right. Well, uh, I was wondering where you draw your ideas uh, on what episode to make next. Uh, sometimes Chris and I were like wondering, we sit there wondering, hmm, what do people want to listen to and what do we want to talk about? And, you know, so where do you get your ideas from? Um, they generally just come to me. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, but I mean, you got to keep in mind that um, I don't think of them all at once. Uh, many of these ideas I've been accumulating for years. Like I said, I've had this this growing list. And mm -hmm. the problem is I can only make uh, four to six episodes a month, even doing this full time. And so I'm often thinking of at least four to six new ideas every month. And then I just add them to the list. So the list never actually shrinks any. In fact, it still continues to grow some. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I just when I'm talking on the, some of the Facebook forums, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I'll see mm -hmm. a discussion come up with something. I'm like, you know, that, that would be a good topic for a video, you know, so I'll, I'll write it down. And uh, sometimes even when I'm making a video myself and and I'm kind of brush over a topic, I think, you know, that would be something that would be good to come back and do a full, you know, like in-depth episode on sometime, you know, in the future. Like I was talking about earlier where I did CPM and I had to mention it real briefly and brush over it. But, you know, it'd be nice to come back and, and do a you know full episode on it to go a little bit more in-depth. So, you know, I don't know. I just uh, I'm thinking about this kind of stuff all day long, every day. So uh, it just comes to me. Sure. And how do you know which one to do next? Do you have a hat and you just draw one out? No, it's actually, that's kind of one of the more frustrating things because of this list I have, um, there's, you know, I kind of have a little spreadsheet and I kind of have little color codings on them. And uh, one of the problems is a lot of the uh, video ideas I have, I can't actually make because I'm missing some item or um, if that's not the case, uh, in many cases, I'm like, well, I'd like to make this video but I feel like I should do this one first because it would kind of lead into it. So, uh, for example, in my Commodore history thing, I'm, I'm trying to do them from beginning to end. And so I don't want to just jump in and do an Amiga episode right now because I want to finish doing all the, uh, the Atari mm -hmm. stuff. And, and the same with the Tandy. It's like, well, you know, I'm doing a lot of my Planet X3 development on the Tandy 1000. I really want to do a video on the Tandy 1000, but I really feel like I should do... Uh, if I'm going to do a Tandy 1000 video, I should really start back with the TRS-80s and, and mm -hmm. you know, kind of build up to it. And so a lot of these videos, they're kind of, the ideas are written in some, in some cases, even partially scripted, but um, they're just not available to be worked on right now. They're just essentially on, on uh, the back burner. And so, you know, at any given time, I have maybe 20 of them that I could make. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I usually pick from one of those and I just, I just, uh, I don't know. I just, I just try to pick one that, uh, like if I just did a restoration episode, I don't want to do another one right after that. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to, you know, keep things interesting. So I'll, I'll move to, uh, something else. And I don't know. It's, sure. there's no scientific method to it. It's uh, really a case by case. Unrelated question and up for debate. Um, are you a Star Trek fan? And if so, which Starfleet captain do you think is uh, most superior? Well, I'm definitely a Star Trek fan, and I have seen every episode of Star Trek from the original series all the way through the last episode of Discovery. And I've even seen most of nice. the fan films, too. So nice. <laughs> I would say that makes me a pretty, pretty heavy Star Trek fan. My favorite captain. That's an interesting question. Um, let me think about that. Janeway. Definitely not Kirk. Um, not Janeway. Uh, definitely not going to be this uh, most recent one. And his name's <laughs> escaping me for a moment. The guy that turned out to be from the alternate Gabriel, universe. Gabriel. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely not going to be him. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a, a showdown between Captain Picard and Captain Sisko. And yeah, I'm not sure which one I like better. Which. Uh... Yeah, that's a, that's hard. Which qualities do you find the uh, best in them? I mean, as far as uh, why they're better. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Things I hadn't thought about before. <laughs> uh, they are you know, pretty like different. Personality. Um, they seem to be pretty well straightforward. They. Um, you know, I, I can tell you some of the things I don't like about, for example, Kirk. I thought he was uh, often too emotional and too um, hasty. Uh, he didn't think things out really well. And of course, fortunately for him, the scriptwriters tended to make things work out for him, even though <laughs> I think his his behavior as a captain probably would have gotten everybody killed uh, in, in real life. <laughs> Um, you know, Picard seemed like he was far more interested in the safety of the ship and, um, you know, trying to explore and do the right thing and, uh, you know, kind of drawing a line between what's too dangerous and, you know, what's, uh, mm -hmm. what's, he was more diplomatic, you know, rather than let's just blow him up and <laughs> <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Uh, Janeway, on the other hand, she was a little bit unbelievable at times. I've, I found her character to be. I don't know, unrealistic at times, but uh, she liked coffee too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I found uh, Janeway to be my favorite. I think she became my favorite during that episode with where Tuvok and Neelix got merged together in the transporter. They became Tuviks, and he was like, "I don't want to die. I don't want to die." And she took the hypospray herself, looked him in the eye, and separated them. <laughs> Just yeah. she's, she's cold and relentless, and. I mean, got assimilated on purpose. So, <laughs> on the bad you know, scale, some of the, that's some of the things that I just don't think that are are realistic. That what you're talking about there, for example, I mean, you know, you're going after one crew member who, as far as you know, has abandoned the ship, and you're going to sacrifice like potentially all these other crew members to save one. I just don't know. I, if I were the captain, I wouldn't make that decision. I, I would. You know, at some point I would have to say, you know, the safety of my existing crew is, is going to outweigh, you know, the, the one, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the yeah. one, you know. Yeah, like Spock and, said. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, she was pretty irrational. It's part of her term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, 
I, I was going to disagree with both of you guys and say that uh, Captain Jonathan Arthur is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur? Just because he was in Quantum Leap before that. No, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, all joking aside, I actually do think he was a pretty, uh, pretty good captain and pretty level-headed. He kind of had a little bit of both Kirk and Picard in him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's just my take. Well, you know, I, I think Jonathan Archer is okay. I, I don't have too many complaints about him. I have to admit though, I got turned off from him on the very first episode and literally like one of the very first scenes where, um, he was, um, he went in and they, and they, they, uh, they had the three Vulcans there and, mm-hmm. and then they had the Klingon that was, um, you know, he was in the sick bay, basically on life support or whatever. And the Vulcans were telling him, Hey, you know, you need to wait and let us handle this because, you know, the Klingons are warriors. They're going to come here with, you know, uh, warships, you know, and last thing earth needs is a squadron of Klingon warbirds here or whatever. And Archer basically just completely blew them off. And I was like, Holy cow, this guy's ignorant. Why won't he listen to these Vulcans? They know what they're talking about, you know? <laughs> So that that turned me off from him in the very very first episode, but admittedly, you know, he seemed to wise up a little bit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as the series progressed. Uh, that's great. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> that was pretty good. I never uh, fully. Uh, I, I had to look up what the lyrics for that uh, terrible soft rock song they said um, they Come played on. was because been a long road at that part where it said never here. gonna bend. Or break me. I thought it said something much more inappropriate <laughs> to say on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, song has been a sore point for that series. Uh, I never cared for it much either, and um, I just didn't think it. It wasn't necessarily a bad song, but I just didn't think it fit with being Star Trek. You know, Star Trek's supposed to have an instrumental intro. That's mm-hmm. just the way it's always been. Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't care for it. Yeah, and they they had a committee of people. They they probably focus grouped that, and they said, "Yep, yep, this is good. We're we're going with this." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could have been worse, but you know, it, well, definitely not my favorite. I got one. So, David, Star Wars or Star Trek? <laughs> I'm definitely going to go with Star Trek. All right. <laughs> now all Star Wars people are going to hate us, though. <laughs> <laughs> I've really been enjoying your other channel. Um, Eight bit keys. Um, I'm I'm curious uh, when you got into playing music, um, and if you play any other instruments besides the keyboard. <laughs> well, um, not really. Um, I I can play the drums, although I haven't in years. Um, I I did actually. Um, I was in in band in uh, you know junior high and high school, and I, I was actually the drums is what I played. However maybe that was isn't a very accurate statement actually i played uh, percussion <laughs> uh, my band director absolutely hated me we did not get along and he actually specifically told me one time that i have no musical talent and so he would always assign me to play like the tambourine or the triangle or some <laughs> useless little instrument that basically <laughs> takes no talent to play and so I never really actually played the drums in school, even though, you know, I did have to learn. That was part of the course. I did have to learn to play them, but I never actually got to play them <laughs> until after school. When I graduated and I, I kind of had a little band going back in the 90s and 
but uh, anyway, yeah, so I learned to play keyboard around that time too. I'm more or less completely self-taught. I don't have any formal training on it, and I don't even know how to read music very well. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but I just, I find the... I find the keyboards interesting from a technological standpoint, much in the same way I like the old computers, just, you know, looking at the evolution of the technology. And, you know, as a kid, I had several of those little uh, toy keyboards and I was so fascinated with them, even though I had no idea how to play them. Um, I just, you know, I thought they were a neat electronic gadget. So uh, I guess I just have fond uh, memories of those as well. That's really cool. I, uh, I, Used to play in high school and uh, through college as well. My high school band director did not like me either and uh, got out of music for a long time. But uh, while I never picked up uh, the instrument that I used to play, which was the uh, trumpet, and um, I, I do make uh, chiptune covers on Game Boys. So thankfully, the ability to read music still translates well there. Oh, okay. I especially enjoyed uh, that episode about how to use the the Arduino boy. I'm yeah. I'm considering getting a MIDI keyboard just so uh, just so I can uh, uh, do that. Yeah, I get asked. I get a lot of emails about that video, and the sad part about it is, uh, I made the video, and the the Arduino boy was kind of a pain for me to use because it required so many items to be set up and connected all at once. I just don't have the room to, to set it up and play with. So once I was done with the video, I just pretty much put it away. Actually, I ended up giving that away to somebody else in town that wanted it. And so basically everything I know about it was in the video. And yet, you know, <laughs> of course, I get lots of people wanting more in-depth knowledge of it, uh, how it works and what how they can do this or that with it, whatever. And I have to tell them, and I'm sorry, basically everything I know about it was in the video. So <laughs> that's, that's the extent of my knowledge on it. Uh, making music on the Game Boy is honestly much easier on, on the Game Boy itself, I mean, they, uh, there's a program called Little Sound DJ. It's still actively maintained. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've had a few people mention that. I've I've looked it up. Um, it looks, you know, kind of interesting. Um, I kind of plan to play with it at some point. <laughs> cool, cool. As, speaking of uh, music and everything, and, and the technology behind it. So, on the episodes of the Sound Blaster and the the Casio keyboards, uh, how did you find out that they had the same sound processor? Um, Actually, it was a Yamaha those? keyboard that had Yamaha. it. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Um, you know, I I think I was doing some research um, on the chips, and uh, I remember coming across a web page that had a listing of all of the Yamaha chips and what keyboards they were used in, and I was surprised to see the YM3812 listed in like seven or eight different keyboards, and so. And that encouraged me to go, you know, pick some up on, on eBay and, and try them out. And, you know, of course I opened them up and sure enough, yeah, there it was. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I think a lot of people were surprised to find out about that. Uh, so I, yeah, I didn't was. know about that back in the time, back in the day either. I definitely made sure to hit like on that video. Cause I was blown away when I saw that. Why, why specifically toy keyboards? You know, I get asked it a lot, so uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the main reason I focus on those is uh, because there are a variety of other channels out there um, covering professional keyboards. Nobody else seemed to be covering the toys, and so and, you know, those were those were historically important, and a lot of people grew up with those. And so I felt like uh, somebody needs to to give these things some attention on YouTube, and <laughs> um, 
there's more to it than that also though because you know i've tried reviewing some of the more professional keyboards and you know i've owned several of them you know rollins and korgs and stuff like that and truth be told uh, if i were to try to make a review of a you know a korg or roland or something like that it's it's I can't make a, a 15 minute video about it. It's going to wind up being like a two or three hour video to show everything that it can do. And then of course, you know, I like to make a little multi-track tune, even if it's only 30 seconds, you know, just to kind of showcase what the keyboard would sound like if you had like a group of four or five people playing the same keyboard. And, you know, but if, if I had a, you know, professional keyboard, people are going to really, their expectations is going to go up quite a bit as to what they're going to expect to hear from my multi-track performance. And so right now, Believe it or not, that 30 to 60 second clip that I that I do, I usually allocate one day for that. So let's say it takes me four or five days to put together a single episode of 8-Bit Keys. The um, that, that one little 30 second musical clip takes me an entire day to produce. I usually set aside a whole day and I start in the morning and I start trying to come up with a tune. Uh, sometimes I'm lucky and I already had a tune idea in mind and I just have to develop it a little bit. And then of course, I have once I've, kind of determined exactly what how all the different tracks are going to be. Then I got to go like record them. And of course I have to do it over and over and over. Cause you know, naturally I'm never going to get it right the first time. <laughs> and so anyway, the point is I spent a whole day do do a 30 second video clip uh, for the performance on the, on the music. And if I had a professional keyboard, like I said, people's expectations are going to be a lot higher and I'm probably would need to allocate a whole week to produce a 30 second, you know, musical clip. And, you know, I just, I don't have the time for that. And so I, I think APIC keys works out pretty well because um, for all those different reasons I just stated. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually don't even remember how, how I came up with the, I came up with the audio, right? The, the sound to this podcast. I think I did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was using GarageBand, and I'm pretty sure I, uh, I, I just uh, mashed a bunch of keys together and then it sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to go, Chris, or? Sure. Um, do you listen to any, any podcast, David? No, not really. Um, the, I guess the problem with it is they're usually pretty long and I'm pretty, um, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> Makes and sense. So uh, I just, if I had like a long commute or something in the car, I would probably listen, you know, put some like on a USB stick or something and listen to them. Uh, but I, I don't commute anymore. And so I'm always at home and most everything I do requires that I, for example, I can't edit video while a podcast is going in the background. You know, there's just, there's just no way I'd be able to listen to that and try to edit, you know, video at the same time. I can't shoot video with a podcast going in the background. So the point mm -hmm. is, there's very little I can do to listen to a podcast conveniently. And so I just, yeah, unfortunately I just don't listen to very many of them. Besides this one though, right? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'll probably listen to bits of it when it comes out. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. Um, my turn. Um, so David, have you ever watched the show halt and catch fire? I have. And I am. So then what's your favorite season? I've only ever completed season one and I watched. Oh, with a giant about half of season two and somehow or another it lost my interest. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, one of the neat things about halting gets fire is, uh, somebody sent me a picture once. Uh, the, uh, it's actually a family member of mine. They texted me a picture 
of a game that was on on screen on Halt and Catch Fire. And they said, David, I know I've seen this game before, but I think it's one we played when we were younger. What was it? And I looked at the game and I'm like, that's Planet X1. I wrote that. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> a few years ago. That's great. And I said, what episode is that? Because I want to go, you know, find find where it was. And he said, well, it was only uh-huh. like a three second scene. And it was somewhere in season two. And like I said, I never finished season two. So I've yet to see exactly which episode that was in. But apparently, um, from what I understand, uh, that they, they actually showed a screenshot of that. And apparently that was one of their online games that they were saying that they mm-hmm. um, that they were creating on the C64 with their online right, uh, service that they were doing. And mm-hmm. I saw another tank-like game that they were playing that doesn't look anything like Planet X1. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know where the that came in, but um, anyway, I was thrilled to see that, and yeah, I guess it made sense that they used that too because it's a it was a relatively unknown uh, game, and even though the irony is that game was written for the Vic Twenty, and they, apparently they were showing it running on a C sixty four, which would obviously not happen because <laughs> they're incompatible. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, it's a relatively unheard of game, so I could see why they would use that because um, if they had put like you know, Pac-Man or something up there, everybody would know, hey, no, they didn't invent that. You know, that that was, you know, around a long time ago. And of course, I had no copyright or trademark or anything on that. So, you know, they were obviously free to use it. So, <laughs> uh, Speaking of the uh, Planet X series, um, one question I had when watching the making of Planet X 2 in the, in the uh, tile draw application that you wrote, um, how it... Um, how it outputs the data of each tile so you can um, program it later. How do you initially copy it out of tile draw from the Commodore 64? By hand. <laughs> I, that's what I was wondering. No. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's only like 16... Actually, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's 16 bytes to copy for the actual tile and then another four for the color information. So it's 20 bytes. It's not a lot. And um, I actually designed these... You know, I wasn't. I, I would design in the early days. I would design maybe one tile a day because I was working on the code alongside that. So I only needed a few tiles to get things going. And then every now and then I would add something new and something to say. You know, it's not like I sat down one day and just copied over, you know, like forty-seven tiles at once. I mean, it was it was done a few at a time. However, uh, the new Planet X three does not do that. Um, I actually wrote the tile editor so that it stores the entire tile database in a single file. You know, all in fact, the Planet X3 actually has 256 tiles because I'm doing graphics mode instead of text mode, so I have ability to use more tiles. But uh, yeah, it actually stores it as in a, a tile database, and so uh, you can edit all the tiles at once in the same without you know exiting the program. And um, and of course, then the game itself just loads up that same tile database. So uh, yeah, that does simplify that. And and I did that also partly because I had other people helping me design the graphics for Planet X3 so I could send them a copy of that and and they could basically edit the tile database directly without having to know any programming or anything like that. Can I ask you a question about Planet X3 or several? Yeah, <laughs> um, well, I kind of want to know how the progress was going and if you were going to add multiplayer. Um, at this point, I'm not planning for multiplayer, not to say that I might not do a follow-up in the future, but uh, progress is, uh, well, I made a lot of progress really quick uh, early this year, and then uh, progress has kind of slowed uh, because I've kind of put it on the back burner a little bit while I've tried to get some more video projects done, uh, but, you know, I just literally 
spent the last two hours working on it before uh, before we started this podcast. I mean, I, I am still working on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm going to do, of course, another follow-up probably next month showing you know some of the new features I've added. But uh, one of the sore points I've got right now is, is figuring out how to deal with sound and music. As it currently stands, the game has no sound and no music. Uh, literally no code at all whatsoever to deal with that. It's totally silent. Is it a memory and, issue? No, no. It's just uh, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how I want to tackle it. See, on the Commodore 64, I only had one sound chip to worry about. Well, on the you know MS-DOS, I'm, I'm going to be supporting three different sound chips. And, um, you know, you got the PC speaker, and then I want to support Tandy sound, and then I want to support AdLib. And, well, each one of those is going to be a huge chore in and of itself. In fact, you know, you might think of sound being simpler to deal with than graphics, but actually from what I'm seeing, the graphics is easier to deal with than sound. Um, and what it looks like I'm going to have to do is uh, write my own music tracker. Oh, wow. And I I know there's some existing ones out there, and I've already chatted with a, a lot of people about this. And uh, But the, the trouble is that there's a good tracker out there for AdLib, and there's a good tracker out there for PC Speaker. There's really not any trackers I've found that do Tandy Sound uh, particularly well. But there's no integrated, there's no like one tracker that does all three. And so I would have to be like, trying to support three different types of musical routines that from other trackers into my program. And Mm -hmm. uh, it just, it started to look like a nightmare. And so I think just in order to make it easy to integrate into the game, I'm probably just going to have to end up writing my own tracker uh, because um, Anders Jensen's going to do all the music composition, but he can't do anything until I give him a program and tell him, okay, here's what you can start writing it with. (laughs) And Well, I know he's working on some ideas, you know, just playing out, you know, on the keyboard and whatnot. But as far as actually like getting anything uh, written down or coded in, you know, you need a tracker for that. So, yeah, I'm I'm probably at some point here really soon going to have to just put Planet X3 aside and just put it on the back burner and start working on a tracker. And I'm estimating that may take me two months to write that. And uh, and when I'm done, it'll hopefully support uh, all three sound chips in the same program. And then... um, and then, of course, I can implement the player routine into the game. And of course, then I got to deal with sound effects too, which is a whole separate thing from the music. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, there's uh, there's gonna be a lot of work to do getting that that sound working. And yeah, that's that's a sore point right now because uh, I'm just not looking forward to it. It's uh, it's gonna be a, a big chore. It really sounds like it. Is there any commonality between the Tandy sound system and something like AdLib? I mean, could you use General MIDI or anything like that? Uh, Tandy is sufficiently enough different from AdLib that, um, you really need to write a custom track for the, uh, for the Tandy. It, it's, a uh, it's, it uses the same sound chip that the PC, uh, PC Junior uses. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, that same sound chip is also used in several game consoles and other computers of the era. For example, the, uh, Sega Master System uses the same sound chip and the, uh, TI-99 4A uses the same sound chip. <laughs> And I think there's uh, seems like there's one or two other computers and game consoles that also used it, uh, but it's just a it's a three voice square wave sound chip with a, a fourth voice that does noise, and uh, the uh, ad lib on the other hand is far more sophisticated. It's got uh, like I guess nine voices, and they can be all kinds of different waveforms and stuff. So and they've got uh, ADSR envelopes and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the uh, Tandy by comparison's uh, pretty pretty basic. <laughs> Okay. And, you know, I know a lot of the games from the era, they, and this is kind of a sore point for me, something I always found irritating is in many cases, they would try to write one score 
and then just write a routine that would play that same score no matter what sound chip you had. The problem with it is that score was never really tailored to any specific sound chip. In fact, like you said, General MIDI, a lot of the times that's what they would do is they would write the, the music for General MIDI and then they would just try to figure out a way to basically write their own General MIDI player for each of those sound chips. And the problem is the result was less than spectacular, especially on the lower end chips. And so I think you really need a custom soundtrack for those chips. <laughs> that's that's the only way to get, get the best of what they're capable of doing. Sure. Which has been your favorite video to make so far? Favorite video to make? The one you had the most fun on. Hmm. Uh, you keep asking me all these questions I never thought of before, so uh, I <laughs> got to think about. <laughs> let me sli- let me sl- slightly amend to that. Um, I must confess I have not seen the majority of your content. I'm still working my way through it. Um, so if there was one that you said should be the the definitive next one to watch, um, along with being your favorite to make, which one would it be? Well, um, I would just point people to my Commodore history series. Uh, I'm pretty fond of the work I've done on that. Uh, so the Commodore pet video and the Vic 20 video, and then the Commodore 64 video after that, I'd hate to tell someone to start on uh, that series without starting at the first one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm also rather fond of uh, some of the more bizarre videos that I've done that aren't really even necessarily computer related. So like I've done some electric car videos. I, I really like my Chevy volt video that I did. And I know a lot of people were perplexed why I made that because it, you know, like, well, it doesn't fit with your channel. And I've just always said, well, I reserve the right once a year, <laughs> once or twice a year to make something that doesn't fit with my channel. But <laughs> I really yeah. enjoyed the uh, rocket cat tower video. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a perfect example of one of the, you know, bizarre episodes I've made, but uh, I'm actually planning a follow-up to that one, by the way, uh, very soon, probably the next couple months. Um, so yeah, the uh, the one thing I, uh, that's that I like about the Volt video is that I've received so many emails from people who've told me that they actually went out and bought a Chevy Volt after watching my video. In fact, what it surprised me even more is when I was at the convention in uh, Long Island, New York last year, uh, one of the people that came by my booth said that they were a Chevy salesman and they actually showed my video to every customer that come in and asked about the Volt because they said my video explained it far better than they could ever explain it. Oh, wow. So when a customer would ask about the Volt, they he just had my video on cue just to just to you know play it for him, and uh, he said he sold numerous volts from from watching that that video. So that that always gives you know gives me a smile to think that uh, mm-hmm. you know I contributed in some way to uh, to that. <laughs> if I may ask, um, so you mentioned a Long Island retro gaming convention. I just moved to New York. Is another one of those going to happen? Because I would love to go to it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've actually got it written on the calendar over here somewhere. Let's see. Uh, Long Island. It's August 11th through 12th. So, yeah. Well, I'll uh, be sure to come by and say hello. Yep. I should be there. <laughs> Admittedly, it's not as it's not one of the bigger conventions that I've been to, but it's it's not bad. Still sounds fun. They've got a. Uh, an Omni or not Omni, um, uh, an IMAX uh, theater in there. And that's where they had me do my presentation, which was kind of weird uh, because I had to stand at the bottom of the theater and look up at everybody. <laughs> what did you present on? 
Uh, good question. I've had something different at every convention. In fact, I don't even know what I'm going to present on this time. I'm going to have to start uh, thinking about that pretty soon. Uh, usually I try to um, think of something that I've not done a video about so that the people that you know are there in the audience are basically getting new content while they're watching me. Although I know for, you know, I, th I think the last two conventions I went to, and I think this would be yeah, this, this this will be Long Island and the and then Portland. Uh, I I did a Planet X two. Yeah, I, I I showed people basically an almost finished version of Planet X two, and I showed them uh, how it worked and uh, what what the game was like. And you know, I had, that was before I released a video about it on YouTube. So I think uh, people got to see something pretty neat. Oh, uh, very cool. That was uh, that nobody else had seen. So yeah. And the uh, first real time strategy game for the Commodore sixty four. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a few people argue with me over that, but when they point to some of the games they claim are real-time strategy, I look at them and I'm like, eh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can sort of see why you might think that's a real-time strategy. And maybe it is, but it definitely doesn't classify with the with, with what I think of as a real-time strategy. <laughs> do you, do you uh, say to them, you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the first real-time strategy games I played was Populous. I don't know if you ever played that. But, uh, that came out in the '80s. Oh, I did. For DOS. But they didn't have that for the mm -hmm. Commodore 64. They, uh, I played that on Amiga and MS DOS. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I played in DOS and EGA mode. I admittedly have not played many real-time strategy games, with the exception of Warcraft 2. But I think I'm uh, going to uh, break that dry spell um, and purchase a copy of uh, Planet X2 and load it up in a Commodore emulator. <laughs> Yeah, I only have the uh, light version available now, which just basically comes with the uh, printed user's manual and the, the floppy disk. But uh, everybody keeps asking me about more box versions. But the problem is, uh, you know, uh, you have to order those in minimum quantities of, you know, 500. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think I could sell another 500. So that's why I refuse to buy um, another 500 boxes. Um, but uh, ProtoVision is going to start distributing the game here really soon. Well, I say really soon, sometime later this year. Um, they actually, we struck a distribution deal, and they actually wanted the source code, which I sent them, and they wanted to make some changes. I think they wanted to change the logo on the loading screen and uh, a few other little minor things, and then they were going to distribute it in their own box. And so, yeah, you will be able to get a box set maybe later this year, but it'll be a ProtoVision box, so it won't be exactly the same box that, that it uh, mm -hmm. that my version came with. I've never heard of ProDivision. They look really cool. Yeah, they sell a lot of Commodore sixty four stuff. That's you know modern stuff, and that'll work out good too. Because I had some trouble distributing it in Europe, where a lot of the customers were in Europe, and yeah, they'll be able to take care of that now. So, uh, Euro, do you have anything else? Um. Okay. Uh. So, David, do you have a like a, a game that you remember? the most uh, or a game that you're most fond of from back then uh can you give me a time period <laughs> um okay yeah sure so uh, between the 80s and 90s between the 80s and 90s um you know what populous actually comes to mind <laughs> as uh, one of my favorites um lemmings of course uh, mm -hmm. definitely was one of my favorites at the time uh yeah, uh, you know, like Spy versus Spy, like, you know, Mule. Did you ever play a game called Eagle's Nest? I don't think so. 
That was one of my first games uh, when I, uh, so my first computer was actually an IBM XT and it came loaded with Eagle's Nest, that and Alley Cat, which it seems like a lot of people played Alley Cat a, a lot more than I, I thought I was the only one really, but no. <laughs> so, uh, but Eagle's Nest was a World War II game where you go in and shoot some Nazis and stuff, but uh, yeah. The color I have, I'm good. not familiar with that one or actually Alley Cat either. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah um, there's a few people on the forums that talk about it and a few podcasts. And I, I really thought I was the only one playing this thing, but apparently a lot of people did. And I played it, of course, in CGA with that nice magenta. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's something I've wondered about. Like when these people, like we mentioned earlier, who don't have any experience using these older computers you know, when they were new and so they're going back and exploring them now, I've often wondered how do they pick a game? You know, I tend to pick the games that I always played when I was younger and admittedly I've found, some, you know, people have recommended, Hey, try out this game and that game. And, you know, sometimes I'll find a new game that I didn't know about at the time and it ends up being, you know, pretty fun. But I've, I've often wondered how people, you know, like if you were to hand somebody an IBM XT or a Commodore 64 or an Apple II or something and say, Hey, here you go. Uh, and here's a thousand games you know, pick one and play it, you know, how would they pick one? Because they're not going to recognize any of these games. <laughs> yeah. There is a lot to pick from. And admittedly, not all of them are fun. Mm -hmm. And what's worse is a lot of those games have not aged well. Uh, so games that used to be exciting back in the eighties are actually pretty boring now. And for various different reasons, um, one of the big reasons I think, uh, somebody was asking me about this actually in another podcast I was doing recently, why I thought that. And I think the reason is some of the games I used to play uh, were exciting because they broke new barriers with graphics and sound. And so they were really exciting to load it up because I was like, oh, look at this great graphics and all oh, this great sound. Because, you know, like I said, we were in a period where, you know, every you know few months or year there would be like this new paradigm in how, you know, uh, graphics and sound technology but the um the trouble is a lot of those games that came out that really pushed the graphics and sound sometimes they really weren't all that fun they just they were exciting just to look at the graphics and listen to the music and stuff and and of course now because you know nobody's going to be impressed by music on an 8 or 16-bit machine let's let's face it so you play those games now with a little bit different mindset and you know, if you're not impressed by the graphics and sound, the gameplay has got to be interesting. And unfortunately, like I said, a lot of those games just didn't age well because of that. I completely <laughs> agree. Uh, actually, that reminds me of a few games. Uh, when you were saying that, that reminds me of a few games that completely got me because of the graphics and sound, and mostly because of the sound. Uh, one of them that comes to mind is a game called Siberia. And uh, I don't know if you've ever played it, but uh, it was made by Interplay and Parallax, something like that. But anyway, the now when I I tried playing it again recently and it was just it's just terrible. I mean, the graphics are awful, yeah, <laughs> and the sound and everything. But I remember specifically back then uh, asking my parents for this game because it, it just looked amazing. They had it on on CompUSA and uh, yeah, I guess they sold a, a lot of computers back then with uh, with that game there. For a two hundred and fifty six color palette, it did look amazing. Um, it looks yes, all 3D, and they they made fantastic use of those 256 colors. Mm -hmm. it, it still holds up, in my opinion. So did Mist, by the way, with the 256 colors. Yeah, and of course, a lot of the games 
on the Commodore 64 don't hold up well because they're just too darn slow. <laughs> mm. Two examples that come to mind is uh, like the um, adventure games like Maniac Mansion or Zack McCracken mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, every time you walk your character to a different screen, uh, the disk drive's got to load for 30, 40 seconds. Or in many cases, it'll ask you to take the disk out, put a different disk in or whatever. And it's just it's just ridiculous today it's it's really difficult to put up with that and the same is true of uh, some of the other like uh, um, turn-based strategies like ultima and i loved playing ultima as a kid and i have tried playing the commodore 64 versions of ultima today and it's just so slow i'm like how did i ever tolerate this i mean it takes me like forever just to walk from you know one place to another just because of all the disc swapping and disc loading and disc flipping and uh, just <laughs> It's it's just it's just ridiculous, and so that's another example. Now the MS DOS version is more tolerable because you can put it on a hard drive, and it's more or less you know instantaneous. But the the C sixty four versions were just yeah, I just I can't play them today. I guess it feels like uh, visiting your best friend from high school and realizing they haven't changed at all, and you've changed a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do remember you saying something about that, David, uh, on the Planet X two um, development video that you wanted to that you made plan x to load um everything into ram yeah so you wouldn't have to disk swap or anything like that exactly yeah that's great and you know i've actually received some criticism from that because a lot of people were saying oh well you know what i wouldn't mind waiting for like a title screen to load and then i wouldn't mind of waiting you know when the game was over for it to load the um you know like the in-game screen or whatever and i guess i could have done that um but I just I kind of wanted it to to all be in RAM, and mm-hmm. maybe you know looking back at it, maybe I should have I might have been able to expand the gameplay a little bit more had I moved like the title you know intro and and in game screens uh, out of out of memory onto disc. I, I suppose I might have been able to fit a little a little bit more gameplay in there like I wanted to. On the other hand, they didn't develop the game, and you'll never make everyone happy. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But fortunately, the uh, MS-DOS version is going to have everything I wanted it to have and more. <laughs> it's uh, considerably more complex than uh, than the C64 version. Uh, just just as an example, on the C64 version, you could ba- well by the time it was done, you basically could build two buildings: a factory and a missile silo. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> with uh, Planet X3, uh, currently you can actually build eight different buildings, and uh, there may be more coming. <laughs> so, and each of these buildings wow. does different things. So there's going to be a lot more complexity, a lot more, um, you know, way, different ways to win the game, uh, a lot, a lot more ways to find your enemy or defeat your enemy and, you know, give you more choices to make it more interesting. So will the um, enemies be placed randomly this time? That's a good question. I have not decided yet. It's I'm still planning to use more or less the same uh, pathfinding technique that I used on the C64 version, which means mm-hmm. the enemy still won't be able to find you if you know they have to go through a maze. In other words, <laughs> but uh, so they still need a a decently clear path. I mean, there could be obstacles in their way, but the obstacles you know, can't be shaped too crazily. <laughs> Otherwise they'll get stuck. And, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I don't know. But one of the things I did want to do, uh, which is, well, I guess I, I definitely want to have the one main base 
And then uh, one of the things I've thought about doing is uh, having one of the little characters that comes out of the pyramid. Well, you'll have some mm-hmm. characters that are attacking. I mean, the, the, well, in the in the Commodore sixty four version, there's only one enemy unit, which is the the little protoid humanoids. And mm-hmm. uh, this version is going to be several different enemy units to to deal with. And um, I was thinking about creating a special one where his only goal is he'll uh, he'll periodically come out of the pyramid and just wander the map and establish a new base in a random spot. So Ooh. you might start off the game with one base. Uh, but by the end of the game, there might be four or five of them in random locations. So that's kind of what I was was thinking of doing is a little bit of a compromise. Um, so you'll definitely be getting attacked by the first base because they'll definitely have a clear path. The other ones, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, it should definitely be more interesting than, uh, than the C64 version. I'm uh, certainly looking forward to trying out uh, X2. I guess I should find a VIC-20 emulator and try X1 as well. <laughs> the next one was more just an experiment for me. It's you know it's got about three minutes of gameplay, and then it kind of gets boring um, <laughs> because there's not a lot you can do with it. You know, I'd really plan to do more with it too. And uh, you know what's interesting about that is is at the time I wrote it, I mostly wrote it for myself. There wasn't anybody else to play it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anybody else that had a Commodore VIC-20 or even an emulator that cared to try it. I, I did get on a, uh, a Commodore forum one time back at the time, and, and I said, hey, I've, I've written this game. You know, Would anybody like to try it out? And I've never got any replies. And so, I'm, you know, it, it, that, that was frustrating. And that's one of the reasons I never completed the game back then was because, you know, I, I made enough of it to satisfy myself that, hey, I could do this. But without anybody to play it, it's mm-hmm. kind of like writing a novel without anybody to read it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad I've got enough audience today that uh, there's going to be people interested in playing it. So, And, and I've sold uh, quite a few copies of Planet X2 to my surprise. I really, to be honest, I thought when I bought the 500 copies originally, the box copies, I thought I'll probably be selling these 500 copies for the next two or three years. And I sold out literally within like a month. Wow. And, That's great. and then I've been selling just the light version for a while and I've sold a couple hundred of those so i think i think the last i checked i've sold around around 800 copies of the game total that's a good problem to have though yeah yeah well it is and and but you know i guess the thing i like the most is just the the fact that i know that there are people out there playing it now i'm sure there are probably some people that tried it and they're like well this isn't my game and they just don't like it and that, that's to be expected you can't please everyone but uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure that uh, at least a good maybe 80% or 90% of the people that, that bought it are, are playing it and enjoying it and that that brings me you know pleasure to know that <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a good thing or a bad thing but I just did a search for uh, Planet X2 on eBay and I don't see any so I guess whoever's bought it are uh, keeping it I've done the same search. I've often wondered if anybody would throw up their copy to see if, you know, they could sell it or something, but I've, I've never seen one show up. <laughs> Hero, there's a one question I have highlighted that uh, you wrote, and um, it's really good, and I think you should ask it. I had a question. It was uh, that when, when you're making restoration videos, um, have you ever had an issue that you just couldn't resolve? Oh yes, yes indeed. And uh many of the restoration videos never uh how should we say never got finished because of that. Do you wind do you wind up hanging hanging onto those machines? Um most of the time and and sometimes I do end up 
completing them, but I just don't completing them. I don't finish them in a way I'm proud of. And, you know, I've, I've got one I'm working on right now with a uh, PC Junior, and I'm, I'm pretty happy so far with the results on that one. You'll probably be seeing the uh, video here really soon. And I've managed to overcome a number of interesting challenges, including a cracked PCB in the monitor and uh, creating a custom badge uh, for the computer because it's missing one. And, uh, of course, retro writing and a variety of things uh, to fix up this one. But, uh, yeah, there's been some, especially some of those old Macintoshes and stuff that just drive me insane uh, because they can have all these bizarre problems and... Um, Sometimes the retro writing process hasn't gone well. Of course, I've I've actually ended up showing that uh, in a few cases where it didn't work out very well. Uh, nothing else people can learn from my mistakes. Um, yeah, but uh, they're, they're definitely in fact, you know that's that's a problem I, I get into uh, with with a lot of the machines actually. And um, you know sometimes people will be like, "Hey, how come you haven't uh, put out a video? It's been like two weeks or something." Well, it's probably because. I had a video or two that didn't work out and I had to shelve it and, and move on to something else. And, <laughs> and that's usually why there's a delay. Have you had um, have you had one you were, you were trying to restore that you just wanted to go absolutely office space on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I've got one, for example, I started recently, which is a little compact uh, portable unit uh, that is like a luggable, but it's got a plasma screen on it. And um, I found out about halfway through restoring it that the plasma screen doesn't work. I, th I thought it worked because when you when I booted up, it would say like non-system disk on the screen. And you could read it. But I found out the right-hand side of the screen doesn't work. Oh, no. <laughs> so once I, once I got it working good enough to display more than a few characters, I realized half the screen wasn't working. And then there's no way to fix it. It's, it's a problem in the panel itself. And so, again, I, I had to shelve that one because I'm like, well, I, I, there's nothing I can do. Uh, to get this working. And so until I find a, a spare panel, which maybe who knows when that'll be, <laughs> but yeah, that's just an example of some of the, the types of problems I've, I've run into. And, you know, there's some things I can fix and there's just some things I can't. I, and that's just the reality of it. <laughs> I think we're probably running a bit long. Euro, you want to ask uh, one or two more so we can wrap it up? I had one more question and it was actually about the uh, Apple extreme that you have hanging on your, on the back end. Uh, on the, on your background is that is that a fully functioning Apple Extreme? It is. Huh. However, I don't use it much anymore. Uh, in fact, it's actually on its own SSID now uh, because I had trouble getting it to uh, cooperate with some of the newer um, units in the house, and so. Uh, but it is still hooked up. It still works, and you can connect to it. Uh, you just you have to you know mm -hmm. literally select the SSID for that unit, but and it only runs at a hundred megabit. Or not, not 156 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. 54 megabits. I remember when they had the uh, the uh, 55 mile an hour looking sign for 54 megabits per second on their website for it. And in reality, it ends up usually being more like 20. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. After yeah, all the interference. But yeah, you know, I've just had no reason to take it down, even though I don't actually use it anymore. But I, when I first developed the set, I was actually uh, using that fairly regularly. I had two of them in the house, uh, one on each side. And, uh, but now I've got some more modern units and, uh, some, mm -hmm. and yeah, they, they just don't, they just don't cooperate with that one. <laughs> it's still a neat looking unit though. That's why I keep it up there. It is indeed. It is. <laughs> uh, that's why I saw it. I'm like, Oh wow. I haven't seen one of those in a while. 
I've even got one of the really, really old ones that's only the 802.11b. They're kind of, they look exactly mm-hmm. like that, but they're gray. Um, oh, wow. But yeah, I can't use that one because they don't even support like WPA encryption or anything like that. So, oh, just, um, just yeah. One. Well, uh, Chris, do you want to take the last, last one? Mm, honestly, no. I, I think I, I'm out of, I'm out of questions. Um, all I have left is uh. All right. Well, you said I got to ask. I could ask you some questions. Oh so yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, please, please go ahead. All right, pick one. Uh, Star Trek Discovery or the Orville? Orville. Orville. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even blink. <laughs> that, 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 that's my choice as well I, I like both shows but if I had to pick one just, just one to watch I think I'd pick the Orville indeed I think uh, that's, uh, that's, that's Norm MacDonald's best role <laughs> I, actually um, you know I love Star Trek and right now I'm looking at all my Star Trek DVD collections of Deep Space Nine and the Blu-rays of TNG and everything and I don't really want to buy Discovery and um I, I I feel bad when I say that, but it's yeah. just not the show that I that I was hoping that it would be. And then the Orville came out, and it was completely the show that I wanted it to be. Yep. So, yeah, hey, that's that's exactly it. So yeah, I I like Discovery. It's okay, but it really doesn't mm. feel like Star Trek to me. That's it, right. Yeah. It feels like some yeah, other I've been show. Saying it the whole time. Yeah. It, it's just if they just took Star Trek out of it and just called it Discovery, uh, whatever. Yeah. Just just yeah. Discovery. I'd be okay with it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you know, I wish they, I almost like you said, I wish they'd made just a standalone show or something rather than than mm-hmm. make that Star Trek. And um, yeah. yeah, the Orville tends to fill, I think, a gap that we've actually had for a while because you know we've we've had all these different series of Star Trek, and we've had um, you know the ne- well after we had the Next Generation, um, all the uh, series that came after that really kind of had their own feel to them. You know, Deep Space Nine was all about the war and, mm-hmm. you know, dealt with, uh, you know, the space station and whatever. And, of course, Voyager, you're stuck on the other side of the galaxy. And mm-hmm. and uh, and then Enterprise, of course, being the prequel and, and whatnot. And, and so I, f- I really feel like with um, the Orville, I feel like we've finally gone back to, like, the next generation. Only, granted, they've added a little bit of weird humor in there. But other mm-hmm. than that, it... it feels like watching Star Trek The Next Generation, which is a something I, I haven't really seen since you know the early 90s as far as any right. new material. And so, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I like it. So. Yeah, it's, it's, I, was, I was hoping that Star Trek Discovery would, well, in my opinion, be um, different, more Star Trek-like, but also that it would be set in the 24th century um, so that it would continue on the uh, TNG timeline. Yeah, well, of course they did. You know, I guess wrap that up pretty well with uh, Deep Space Nine. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I remember when they first started talking about Discovery, uh, we were told it was going to be a show where, well, they didn't. I don't think they had named it Discovery yet, or maybe they had, but uh, but it was it was going to be the new Star Trek series, and they they said it was going to be kind of like the Twilight Zone, where each episode is totally independent from another one. So you might have like one group of people on one ship or space station. And then like the next episode might be take somewhere else, you know, take place somewhere else in the Star Trek universe. 
you know, in a different, maybe even a different point in time. And I actually thought that would be really cool. I, I granted that would probably be expensive from a, a standpoint of, you know, having all these different sets and stuff, <laughs> you know, with, um, but uh, I thought that would be really cool, a, a neat way to explore the Star Trek universe. So I was really looking forward to that. That's something they'd never done before. And then they ended up uh, canning that idea. And then we got discovery. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of wish they'd go back to that. Uh, I'm just glad that Seth MacFarlane uh, came out with uh, the Orville for us for the for the fans, the diehard fans. Yeah. Do you guys watch Rick and Morty? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love that show. I uh, got my got my uh, dad into it as well. Yeah, ever since Futurama has been off the air, I felt like Rick and Morty has sort of filled that gap a little bit. It um, took me a while to get into, um, like. Probably the by the fourth episode, that's when it really clicked. I I had to had a false start with the first one. I was like, nah, I don't I don't like it. And then, yeah, the the pilot episode is uh, was a little bit of a turnoff for me too. It wasn't. Uh, I don't know. In fact, I I just watched rewatched it again recently, and and uh, and I'm like, yeah, this doesn't really feel as much like Rick and Morty as I, mm-hmm. I think they changed direction a little bit when they went to episode two. So, yeah, Steven Universe. I can't say I'm familiar with that. It's the one with the—is that the one with the kid with the candy on his stomach or something? Uh, no? it's a, it's a magical girl show that makes fun of magical girl shows by having, uh, the fourth member be this um pudgy boy who doesn't know how to use his powers, and it's kind of like Adventure Time where you watch it and it seems silly, and uh, at first you're kind of turned off by it, but then it gets very profound and develops a really fun story. Um. It's uh, whenever I have a bad day, that show just makes me. That show just makes me feel good. <laughs> Did you ever watch Tripping the Rift? I can't say that I have. What is that about? Yeah. Oh, it's another animated sci-fi comedy from uh, about ten ten years ago or so. But it's uh, essentially R-rated. It's yeah. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to look Not it up. something you'd want to watch with your kids, but it, it is funny though. Tripping the rift, right? Yeah, tripping the rift. All right, I'm gonna write it down. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I've never seen it. Is it? Uh, do you know uh, if it's on what is it, Cartoon Network or something? Oh, I seriously doubt it. Like I said, this is something you wouldn't want kids watching. Oh, got it. Okay, <laughs> it's got a lot of be, like adult material kind of stuff. No problem. It's got a lot of Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh, yeah, parody and and stuff mm-hmm. in there, but it's got a lot of sexuality and mm-hmm. other stuff in there, though. So anyway, alrighty, well, okay. I guess, I guess we can conclude this then. Well, thank you so much, David. Chris, did you want to say something? Yes, um, thank you again. Um, the prolific amount of uh, content and stuff that you do, um, we we find inspiring. So that uh, makes us feel especially. Uh, Honored that you made the time to speak to us. Oh, well, I'm I'm thrilled that you asked me to be on. Uh, so yeah, if you have got another episode in mind, uh, you know, maybe next month or something you want to do, uh, like on those tandies, for example. The tandy, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, TRS eighty for sure. I would absolutely love to. Um, I will um, when we're ready to put it out. You will certainly be contacted. And thank you for the offer. Alrighty, well, you're welcome. Thanks, David. We really appreciate it. Unfortunately, we don't seem to uh, manage to keep a very consistent schedule. We've had a lot of um, 
just general life stuff going on, but we're starting to get back into the swing of it. We used to try to go for every two weeks. Thanks a lot, David. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, and, and, you know, Chris is absolutely right. You know, you, you making your game and your videos and everything. We're just, we're just glad you had the time uh, to, to talk to us. You know, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. So Actually, much. I'd normally be out walking right now. Um, I usually do that in the evenings. Um, you'll see that if you when you watch my latest video i actually mm-hmm. talk about that but it is pouring rain today and it's 32 degrees outside so i will not be walking today <laughs> so you guys have been the substitute for walking <laughs> i'm glad i could help it all worked out well uh thanks again and you have a fantastic night david yeah. all right you too. thank Bye. you if somehow any of our listeners have not heard of the 8-bit guy he can be found on youtube by searching for the 8-bit guy And since he makes his living making this wonderful content, he can also be found on Patreon at patreon.com slash 8bitguy1, and we will have a link to both in the show notes. Forkbomb Podcast can be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash forkbombpodcast, on Twitter at forkbombpodcast, or you can email us at forkbombpodcast.gmail.com or you can visit our website, forkbomb.podbean.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it.